welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardina Osband, our daf of the day, Masachet Gitin, daf Samach, page 60. So I particularly like the opening of this daf. Join me. Shalchulei b'nei Galil l'Rebbe Chalbo. The people who lived in the Galil sent a question to Rebbe Chalbo. Mahu likrot b'chumashim b'veit knesset b'tzibor. So you're talking here about a time when there was deprivation, and it wasn't a given that you could just assume that everybody has everything they need for all Jewish ritual. And the people in the Galil say, well, can we, what if, what's the halacha? Are you allowed to read from chumashim, from scrolls? Because right? back in the day, this day, they didn't yet have books the way we think of books with a binding, but they had scrolls that were not the Torah scrolls, which sounds difficult because right there, they're still scrolls, but they each of them is only it's only one fifth of the Torah. Each of them is going to be one of the five books of Moses, right? So, can you read one of those as your Torah reading, basically in 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 shul in the synagogue as part of your congregation? Lo have a day, and so what happened is he didn't he wasn't sure, right? Like it's like this is really the now you're talking about a chumash, you're talking about a physical book, and it looks very different from a scroll, and it feels very different from a scroll. And I think the intuitive answer is no, that's not the same thing at all. But back then, I feel like you know this was a legitimate parallel case, and he wasn't sure. So he came, he went to ask Rav Yitzchak Nafcha, and. Lo have a bidet. And he also wasn't quite sure what the answer was going to be. Atisha'el baby drasha. So then they he, Rav Yitzchak Nafcha, brought the question to the Beit Midrash, to the to the study hall. And there they resulted like very easily, very nicely. They solved it. How? Sefer Torah Achat Korinbo. There's a principle that says if you have a Torah school. That is missing even just one sheet of parchment from the whole scroll. You can't read from it as a as a kosher Torah scroll. So then, you know, how much more so can you not read if you only have one fifth of the whole Torah? That's not what's going to count for a public Torah reading. But the Gemara doesn't like this after all that. Velohi hatam mechaser b'milte, hacha lo mechaser b'milte. The Gemara says, one second, that's not a legitimate, you know, proof to the point because there you're saying that something is truly missing. Right, you have a Sefer Torah, and it's missing a part that is supposed to be there. In this case, what is supposed to be there is there. It's just supposed to be a smaller part, a one-fifth. Rab of Rav Yosef Da'amri Tavayu and Korin B'chumashim B'veteknesset Mishum K'vod Tzibor. So we have a different reason then. Rab and Rav Yosef say, you don't read from a Chumash in the synagogue out of K'vod Tzibor. This term is a loaded term. It comes up, we had it back in Masachat Megillah. It comes up here and there in social issues, right? What does it mean to have respect for the community? Um, but the fact is that what's given here is, I would say, you know, not a concern about the quality of the scroll of that one-fifth book, but the the experience of it for the community, or is there some kind of lack of respect to only have the the smaller thing? Rabba Rav Yosef high safer aftara asur and then Rabbi Rav Yosef also said, you cannot read the Haftarah, the public Haftarah, right, from a scroll that only has Haftarahs. He says, because that, that kind of scroll is not supposed to be written to begin with, just like snippets of the Haftarah. You're supposed to read a segment from the entire book of the prophets. So read the book of the prophets and, you know, then read out your segment, but don't read it from a collection. 
this nowadays we don't paskin like this. We do people do read just from a book of the Haftorahs. Um, but and your Dana, you'll remember this better than I. I do recall in Maimonides Shul, right? When I went to the Maimonides school and there were scrolls that had written on them. They weren't under lock and key in the same way that the Torahs were under lock and key. And they had written on the parochot, on the, the covering of the of the scroll itself, Shmuel, Malachim, right? These were the scrolls of the prophets. And I don't know, did they use them on Shabbat? You know, I actually don't remember. I think they did. I, I do remember what you're talking about, and I believe they were used. But there so may be a, the, a co-learner that here who remembers differently. Um, that, but I, I do would believe love to that know. they were used. I think the point that also should be made that we're talking here about just the text, right? Nowadays, people go up to read the Haftorah. They read it with Nikud, with vocalization, and with the Tameh Mikra, the trap of the, the musicality of it, right? That's not in these scrolls, right? It's just the letters. So it's a much bigger challenge in terms of preparation. Nowadays, we know that preparation goes into Torah reading, usually less so for half Torah reading. Okay, fine. Now, the, the, I'm going to jump a bit. Um, I'm going to jump a bit because we have here a dilemma. By, um, I don't know, I, several lines, quite a few. By me, nea, by me, Rabba. So, by ask Rabba the following. What, can you write a scroll? It's only going to have just the one portion of the Torah for the sake of teaching a child. And this goes to, the answer to this question is brought in the context of, well, it depends how you think the Torah was given to begin with. Was it given in like a full, complete work, you know, in one fell swoop? Or was it given section you know, of parchment to the section of parchment, scroll by scroll. And then, you know, like it was, they would write it down as they were told it type of thing. Or was it a complete book? And then it wouldn't have been written like a piece by piece, but they taught, Moshe would have taught the whole Torah to the Jewish people. And then they put it down in writing. And depending on whether you think that that's, you know, do you side with one way or the other, that will answer whether you can write the Parsha, you know, just a small section for the child, presumably, right? If it was written down scroll by scroll, then having smaller sections is not inherently problematic, even if it can't be done for the public reading. Do we say, so this is the Gemara articulating, right? Do we say that if the Torah was given scroll by scroll, then you could write the Torah in separate scrolls? Or do we say that since it was really put together in the end to be just one, then maybe we no longer can separate it? Or do we say, so the second piece is, you know, if it was given in one fell swoop, do we say, well, since it has to be given in one fell swoop, since it was, you can't write it piecemeal. Or do you say, no, but there's no other way of doing it. Of course, practically speaking, you can only write it piecemeal. So therefore, it would be legitimate to, to write it. Why, why is it the, the conclusion is that we don't write a, a separate, uh, we don't write the Torah in separate scrolls, right? Any shul you've been to has one Torah scroll for all five books. And that's true in Sephardi shuls, in Ashkenazi shuls. It doesn't matter the, the setup. It's still going to be one scroll. And what's the reason? Because you cannot write a scroll that is only part of the Torah. The idea is that 
even if that was how it was done the first time around, even if you think that, even if you side with that view, it, it doesn't matter. You still can't do that now. Eighth vein, but Abaye has an objection to this, and his objection comes from a Mishnah in Yuma. Af he asta tavla shel zahav taktuvala. We have this story about I think this is Helen and Amalka, who had a golden. Um, she had a golden. I don't know what tablet disc something right. These words have very different meaning in the modern era, and she put the sota portion on the that text of, from the Torah on this gold. And then he, like if the, the Kohen would come to read, let's say, he would copy that Torah portion from that the item that she had. So you didn't have to take out the whole, meaning if he had to deal with a sota as a as a ritual, like he had to handle a sota, sota woman, to the case of it, I mean, right? So you don't have to take down the whole Torah scroll to, and, you know, work your way to get to the parsha of sota. It was just this one little section. Isn't that acceptable? So Rishlakish says in the name of Ravianai, first of all, that's not a proof. Why? Because Helena Amalka, the Queen, Hel- Queen Helena, right, it wasn't written in a regular way. It was simply just, it was written as an, I guess we would call it an acronym, it, it, some kind of code, right? That was Alf Bet. The first letter of each word was written on, the, on this thing. And then the, the Kohen would remember what the words were. So it was like a mnemonic uh, uh, help. It wasn't really the writing of the full thing. Okay. This, again, it goes on. There are too many exciting parts here for me, so I'm jumping to get to a little bit more. Because um, I want to go back to the question. The original question was, what about for that kid? So the Gemara here, again, I'm skipping a little bit. I'm not yet on a bet. I'm going to stop before I'm a bet. Kitanai ein mutar. So the guy says that whole question, right? Can you write a scroll that would only be a partial thing for a kid? It's really it it aligns or goes with this this brighter that says you can write um that if it, the goal is to complete the scroll afterwards, meaning you're writing it now and you're only at this section and you're going to learn that with the kid. And then later you'll come back and you'll fill out the rest of the text. That would be acceptable. So Rabbi Huda gives sections, right? Like you could write from the beginning of the book of Breshit of Genesis until you get to the generation of the flood. You could write from the book of Vayikra. You could write for Leviticus. You could write from the very beginning until um, Parshat Shmini. Right. So you get nine chapters at a time, let's say, and that's considered legitimate in terms of, I guess it's a it's a complete unit of study, let's say. Um, and then we come back to this discussion of, you know, whether it was given scroll by scroll or whether it was given all in one fell swoop. Um, and and I'm going to stop here. I think this whole section is very interesting to see, you know, different opinions about how the Torah was given. Right. Is it given in pieces? Is it given all at once? Uh, how a Torah scroll is supposed to be written. Can you write it in sections or does it have to be a complete Torah scroll? Uh, and you didn't read this part, but also pay attention to, there's a few comments in there. Uh, it comes up, I think, twice on this stop about also not writing Torah Shabal Peh, um, which is kind of funny because we're sitting here reading Gemara and, you know, Mishnah, uh, which obviously eventually it did become written down. But I think it's interesting to see, like they even bring the Pesukim here to show 
you're really not supposed to write that part down. And obviously there had to be a great shift to say, okay, we are going to start writing it down. So well, I just, I want to note, and you're right. I, cause you know what happened? It's on, I'm in bed. And so it's very much part of the discussion, but I wasn't going on to, I'm in bed. So here's the thing. Um, the, the fact, the whole discussion, right, about the scrolls versus the whole thing at once begins with Moshe teaching everybody, right? And so it was oral before it was written. And so then the question is, well, can you have anything that's, you know, can the oral law be written at all? The Mishnah, and this is always mind-boggling to me, the Mishnah was not written down at the time that the Gemara and this discussion, presumably, were written down. So... So there were things that were written down like as notes, let's say, as compared to a formal, um, formalized text. And that makes a difference, right? Yes, I think there was a tremendous decision to to go ahead and write down the oral law. It was a big, big deal. Right. It was a really big deal to write it down. And I think we can see that uh, within this particular job. So just, you know, pay attention to that a little bit as well. Okay, I'm going to move on now to the next stop, which were the next Amud which is, you know, talking about our mission talked about that there were certain things that were done because of Darche Shalom. And one of the things that it talks about was this whole thing about a uh, pit, right, that's used for water, basically near an irrigation channel uh, that maybe that supplies water to many fields or to other pits, right? The one that's closest to the source of the water gets filled up first. And what basically we see on this stop is, and I'm only going to read a small section of it, is, you know, all of this discussion around, you know, water wars, right? Which really we still see in our world today as well, right? I mean, many people say that's really sort of going to be the next, uh, hopefully it won't come to this, you know, issue within the Middle East and Israel is who controls the water and where does the water come from? Um, and when we were prepping this, you know, Anne pointed out to me that this is something that we see even in the Torah itself with the shepherds of Abraham, the shepherds of uh, Yitzchak, you know, where does the water sources actually uh, where do they come from? Um, and so this is kind of a continuation of this discussion. So I'll just start off where, you know, it starts with Itmar, B'nai Nahara, Ravamar, Tate Shatu Mai Beresha, Ushmuelmar, Ilehu Shatu Mai Beresha. So we have a machlokas here between Rav and Shmuel, that when people own fields, basically along a river, um, and they have to irrigate those fields with water that they sort of take off of the river itself, who gets first rights to irrigate their field? So Rev said it's the people in the lowermost fields, you know, drink the water first. They irrigate their fields first. And Shmuel says it's the one on the upper fields first. And so, you know, they explain this a little more. Right. When you have a case where the water flows on its own, everybody agrees that you can irrigate. You can take water off as you want. Right. They disagree a case where they need a dam. They have to dam the river. Right. They need to cut off the flow of the river uh, to make sure there isn't flooding. And then you have to irrigate it through channels. So Shmuel says the owners of the upper fields drink the water first because they say we're closer to the rivers you know, uh, to, to the rivers, uh, it's called like the headwaters. And Rev says the owners of the lower fields drink the water first because they say if the water went its natural way, we would, you know, we would be able to take it first. So just a very, very interesting, uh, you know, interesting machlokas. Um, and then they bring, you know, now they, and then they bring a Mishnah. Targma Shmuel Aliba 
Right. So there's a Mishnah that talks about that a pit that's nearest to the irrigation channel that's, a, you know, that again gives water to several pits of field is the first one that's filled because of Darche Shalom. So this actually teaches that the, the whatever fields is closest or whatever's closest to the water source gets first right. So this sort of, this supports Shmuel's opinion and it doesn't support Rav. Um, but Shmuel interpret, can also interpret this Mishnah according to the opinion of, of Rav, right? That the Mishnah is talking about an irrigation channel that passes the mouth of the pit. So the pit fills water on its own, even without there being any type of damming, which I thought was so interesting because Shmuel doesn't need to interpret it according to Rav, but he goes ahead and interprets it according to Rav. So I, I'm going to uh, stop here because it's just the, the rest of the DAP just goes through a bunch of other um, uh, cases here. But there's a whole story with Rav Shimi Bar-Ashi, who basically really wanted Abaye to learn with him. And Abaye basically says he has to take care of the irrigation of his water at night. And Rav Shimi Bar-Ashi basically comes and basically makes sure that nobody gets water so that Abaye's field gets water first. And then Abaye basically would not even eat the produce of that field. Uh, for the rest of the year because he felt that the water was not given to his field appropriately. So I just want to make a couple of comments on that story. I'm not going to read the whole story in full. First of all, it's interesting to see Abai obviously worked um, because he was responsible for these fields. So I think that's the first thing to, to recognize here. <laughs> I, I think it's important because in today's world, that's, you know, uh, not necessarily a given that a rabbi works in that way or had Parnassah in that way. Um, and the second is to sort of see somebody who he's still called Rub on the page, Rav Shimi Bar-Ashi, but sort of somebody who's like, yes, he wants to live with Abaye, but it's so misdirected that he goes ahead and like messes up everybody else who's around Abaye. And Abaye, I think, is sort of like, oh, my God, like, what are you talking about? I know you said that you were going to help me, but look at the mess that you caused. And now I can't even use my field for a year. So I, I think the point of this story is to sort of illustrate, like, these things really become very complicated and that people often, even though they maybe had good intentions, you know, probably motivated more, you know, probably a little bit more common than we'd want to admit, motivated to not good practices to make sure that their fields got the best water. I think that I'm going to add, right, that in this era of what, heat and talk of climate change, I feel like all of this becomes very, very real. You know, when maybe we first learned the machloket or the fact that there's dispute over water, at least in my life, you know, growing up in surrounded by water, um, it feels a little bit more abstract. And now it feels very in my face and, and dangerous. Uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I think, you know, as we see climate change and other things happening, this issue of water is going to become, uh, unfortunately, I think more of an issue in the world we live in. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.